praise for the music ministry that has lifted us up to the waters of glory. Let's give God some praise for the choir. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Would you join me in the book of Acts, chapter 1? Book of Acts, chapter 1. And I want to read two passages, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. And then we'll flip to the book of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 1. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of James, and with his brothers. And then Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, we come upon these words. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of bread. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Prominus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests we're becoming obedient to the faith. Amen. You may be seated. In Acts chapter 1, there are two words that captivate the attention of any reader, and particularly once you begin to trace the origin of the word, it travels even back into the Old Testament. In chapter 1, and particularly in verse 13, it says that these disciples, these followers, these chosen vessels of the Christ, 
went into an upper room, an upper room, an upper room. You trace that back to the Old Testament, the upper room was a bit of what we might call today in-law suite for only those who were wealthy were able to have an upper room that they may share with guests who come from a distant to visit or it may be a special place that they've designated where they may have special occasions in which they needed the extended room to be able to have the event successfully. In the Old Testament, when David was building the temple and of course left some of that blueprint to Solomon, the upper room was included as a place of storage. It was a place where sacred objects in the temple were stored. It was a place where the kings would store their resources by way of monetary value. They would store money there. They would have close guards on the door, or at least in the premise, that way no one would violate the upper room. But when we come to the New Testament, there's a different meaning for the word upper room. In fact, there is two sets, two different words, should I say, that's used for upper room as recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus meets his disciples in an upper room and there he communes with them. He identifies who his traitor will be. But he likewise, says John in chapter 13, would leave that sacred table and take the towel that was draped about his waist and begin to wash the feet of the disciples. He did all of that in an upper room. But that upper room is different than what Luke identifies here in Acts chapter 1. For this is a space that is not just a space that is reserved for the wealthy, but this is an upper room where even the common resident may have designated the very top floor of their residency to be the sacred space for privacy, where they would enter into and have very close time and quarters with themselves, with God, where they may have their own personal revival, where they may have their own incense or intense resuscitation by the Spirit of God, where they may be brought back from a dark space. It may be a space in which Jesus refers when he tells us to enter into our prayer closet a very small but yet sacred space where we amazingly meet God and we meet him in an unusual manner that just is not experienced anyplace else. And in this upper room, one interesting fact about it is it could not be approached from inside the house, but you had to go outside for there were stairs that led its way up to the upper room. Amazing in this text, when we last read the story of these disciples, they are in an upper room, but they are hiding, says John 20, hiding from the Pharisees and the religious officials. They are hiding in fear that what has just happened to their Savior may very well be awaiting for them. They are hiding because they did not want to meet the same fate 
as Jesus had met on the cross. And yet now we hear that there's a temptation in them to leave Jerusalem, to go someplace else. In fact, to get far away from the threat. And yet when you read Acts chapter 1, Jesus reminds them, don't go anywhere, stay here in Jerusalem because it is in this space where I have something ordained for you. I have something in which you have never experienced and I told you about it earlier that I have to go away in order for it to come back. And now that I have ascended into glory, I am now ready to give it to you, but it's something that you need in order to operate in the ministry that has been laid upon you. It's, it's an upper room. He tells them, go and wait for me. Remember that story in which he tells the disciples that you will go in town and, and you'll find this coat tied. And when you catch it, when you get it, untie it. And there'll be a man there with a pitcher of water, which is an unusual thing because men in first century didn't carry pitchers of water. And yet there'll be a man there who will carry a pitcher of water and he will lead you to an upper room. There you make ready for this sacred moment we will share together. We call it communion. It is where Jesus broke bread with the disciples and began to inform them of his soon demise. But yet that's not the same upper room that he leads these disciples to. Says the text, he tells them to go here in Jerusalem and wait, but there is a space in which they are to occupy, and it's a critical space because the upper room is a place where God has met me before, and it's a space where I now know, and they now know, that the task that lies before them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem Samaria, the utmost parts of the world, they will need more than just good news in their minds and hearts. They'll need more than just a good hunch. They will be confronted by demonic activity, by evil at a level that they had never perhaps experienced before, may have seen but never experienced. Traveling with Jesus was a good lesson for those three years, but now that Jesus is not there physically, they now have to learn how to endure the night, how to fight the battle themselves. It's, it's great, man, when you get ready to, when you're approached by evil and you want to know what you got to do and Jesus steps to the forefront and handles it. It's like always having your big brother with you who can handle the fight, but now you're on your own. And Jesus knows half of the time they didn't pay attention to what he was trying to teach them, so now he knows they need something more than the memories of what I had taught them. They, they need a presence that can identify in them with what they have to have to use to confront the challenges of the day. They are now being promoted from being disciples to being evangelists. Their ministry has now elevated to another level. They are no longer spectators behind Jesus. Now they are out there making proclamation for Jesus. 
They can no longer stand behind the Lord and watch him encounter and battle evil. Now they are called to confront evil. They no longer can sit and watch Jesus turn bread and multiply that it might feed many and take water and turn it into wine that it might endure the feast. Now they have the task of being an intercessor and standing in the gap and allowing others to see God in them. They are now venues, conduits of God's grace, God's mercy. They can no longer travel with Jesus to see the sick. Now they have to see the sick themselves and they have to go into sick into the sick room and pray themselves. And God knows they need something more than just memories. I realize that even the greatest mind, just an example, I remember in a conference, one preaching conference, we had two magnificent preachers, one preacher, erudite, extremely academically prepared, but when he stood to preach, it was a good sermon, it was a good sermon, but there was something missing in the sermon for life. The next preacher who came later on, very few people attended because they kind of felt like he wasn't that prepared. Don't know how you could say that when he was on that stage, but they felt he was less prepared and wasn't as erudite. In fact, had a bit of a struggle with the English language, but oh, when he stood to preach, we knew that what was missing in the morning sermon showed up in the evening sermon. And what was missing was the power and the presence and the anointing of God's power. And, and no, he had broken English. He, he did not have it homiletically all structured the way it should have been. But he had the spirit. He had an anointing. He had power. He had been in the upper room with his sermon. And he heard God speak to him in a very mighty way. And he stood to preach. There wasn't nothing grandeur to look at him about. But oh, when his voice came out, it was as if John was standing there on the Isle of Patmos telling us, I am he. And it was the voice, says John, the voice of many waters. His feet were like burnished brass and his eyes were the flame of fire and his voice was the sound of many. It was as if Jesus was standing right there speaking because we got a hunch he had been in the upper room. And in the modern church, God is looking for some upper room men who, who are not afraid to get along with him and talk with God about challenges of the day. This text says that it, it marvels me because it tells us that these men, these disciples, and isn't it something, although if you read back in the Gospels, the arrangement of the wording to which these names appear, they are rearranged when you get to Acts chapter 1, and that is because I believe you will see the ministry of Peter, James, and John fully throughout the Gospels as well as the book of Acts, but the rest of the disciples we rarely hear anything from. In fact, you don't hear anything from them at all in the book of Acts. It's as if they disappeared off of the face. But we know they didn't. We know that those disciples made an impact in the region of India, in the region of Egypt. 
We know that these disciples, each and every one of them, had an impact when they turned apostle and then turned evangelist witnesses for God in Jerusalem, but then spreading out to Judea, to Judea and Samaria and the utmost parts of the world. And that is because when they were in that upper room, they had communion with God. And we are a generation of people that struggle with quietness. Getting alone with God. That's the most difficult thing that I have to do. I, I love music in the background. I can't study without music. I've got to have music of some kind. Primarily classical, but I need music going. But there are times when God and I need to talk. Music has to be shut down. And that's because God is saying for us to have the conversation. I know God can talk through the music. I'm not diminishing that possibility. But when God moved in the mountain as he spoke with Elijah, the Bible says he spoke with him in a still, small voice. And I want to tell these men today that God is calling to serve in this church that you better find you an upper room in your house. Because I hate to alarm you. You probably already got fragments of it, but you're going to get the fullness of it later on. You have now entered into a phase of serving God that you're going to see demonic activity like you've never seen before. It's going to rise. Every time there's birth, there's warfare all around. And whenever God is giving birth, the enemy rises to the occasion to challenge. And if now you're going to be challenged by the things of God, you're going to need an upper room every now and then. You need to reside to and say, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee for at right now in this moment there's no other help that I know you're you going to need an upper room where there's nobody but you and God because there are going to be some people some situations you're going to lay out before the Lord and say God now you know we didn't talk about this kind of thing before when you called me I, when the church selected me I thought we were just going to do good stuff But when Jesus took that towel from around his waist and washed those disciples' feet, and Peter said, Lord, you're not washing my feet. Uh-uh, I'm not going to have my Savior to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash them, then you will have no part of me demonstrating before them right there in the presence that you're going to have to leave this space of being comfortable and when you want to serve me, you're going to have to enter into servanthood and understand you come to serve, not to be served. And I want to tell these two brothers, you're going to have to take your towel off sometime from around your waist and there's some feet that you're going to have to metaphorically wash that you're not going to want to wash, but if you're going to be obedient to the servant called of God, then you got to wash those feet. And in that upper room, he is getting them ready for the fact that they need communion, not just to serve, but they need communion for themselves. When we come and have communion and break bread on third Sunday, 
have you noticed it's not just for everybody but there's something sacred about the moment just for you and I where we enter into this sacred moment where we talk with God says Paul where we have to confess before him that we do not eat unworthily of the table and man that's a challenge right there Lord I recognize things about my life that I need to work on because in the upper room, in the communing moment, God pulls out the sacred mirror and makes us see the man in the mirror. And that's where God makes you look at who you really are. No fooling God, no makeup. No descriptive terms that we perhaps could hide behind. Not in the upper room and not in the privacy in which God is communing with us. But there's a real mirror. And I want to let these brothers know when you start serving God, you're going to be driven to that upper room. Not just to be prepared for servanthood, but then you have to be prepared for consecration. Where God makes you see yourself. And it is not easy confessing that I have shortcomings. And the worst thing is, is that if I don't catch it and don't understand it, God will reveal some of those shortcomings to me in public. And, you know, we would like to believe that God don't pull the covers back on us, but I, I tell you, he, he'll, he'll, he'll slowly pull them back. Ask David, won't he pull them back on you? And David, when he heard Nathan come to give him a parable about a man who stole someone else's good, and what should he do to pay him back? And David said he ought to pay him back a hundredfold. And then Nathan looks at David and says, guess what, bro? You're the man. Because in that private upper room, God will show you who you are in the mirror. So it behooves us, deacons, my brethren, to read the word of God so that, says Paul, God can judge me behind closed doors instead of bringing me out public. Because if God judges me behind closed doors, then I can come to the table worthy to partake of this sacred moment. There are men in the upper room there are men in the upper room because they need communion with God, but they need consecration with God, but they also need commitment to God. Look at what the text says. It says that when they were in that upper room, they, all of those disciples in verse 14, had one mind. Y'all got quiet on me. Had one mind had one mind, one mind, one mind, one mind, one mind. Paul says in Ephesians that we got many members, but one body, one mind. Many members, hands, eyes, feet, and no member can say to the other member, you're not needed in the body, but one body, many members, one mind. Could you imagine how we would be if every one of our limbs had a mind of its own? Let me say that again. 
Could you imagine how we would be if every limb of our body had a mind of its own? So my feet would do what it wants to do and my hands would do what it wants. We, we would never look any matter of cohesiveness at everything just going in every which way. And God is already making clear to these upper room men, you are different men with diverse personalities, but you better have the same mind in this mission. Same mind. Same mind. And isn't but one thing driving that mind, and that is the service of Christ to share the gospel and to bring people to a saving knowledge of who he is. Look closely at the text, verse 14. They had not only one mind, but watch this. They were not exclusive. They had to be inclusive. Look at what the text says. They not only had one mind, but they were continuously devoting themselves to prayer. You, you need an upper room because I need a spot where I can be baptized freshly with some power. See, that's why he told them back in the previous verses, beginning in verse 4, 5, all the way down to verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then when you begin to read through the book of Acts, there is a constant refilling because the power is depleted by ministry work in itself. I get weak sometimes. I get wore out. I get pushed to the edge. I get troubled. I get frustrated. I get angry. I make a decision that I'm not going to work. I'm not going back there anymore. Forget them. I'm not having anything to do with church. Lord, I'm just fed up with them. We need to be re-energized. And I just want to serve notice to my two brothers. Oh, there are going to be some days when you're going to wish a thousand times you had told me, no, pastor, absolutely not. But those are the moments, believe it or not, when you are at your greatest for kingdom work. Because you're not only vulnerable, but you're conforming God can conform you to what you need to be and you are willing to listen because the frustration of the journey has allowed you to open your ear to whatever God has to say. And there is only one way that I know and that I think the scripture advocates uh, predominantly that you can get power almost in an instantaneous mode and that's in the mode of prayer. Talking with God in an upper room fashion. And this is important because although the text says that they were in that upper room and you can't tell that anything happened, but when you get to chapter 2, when there's 120 in the upper room, something amazing happens. As the Spirit of God comes down, the Bible says they begin to speak with cloven tongues of fire as the Spirit of God descended upon them. There are going to be some moments when you get along with God and God's going to descend down on you with such power that folk are going to wonder, is there any other person in that room outside of you and God? And let me make it plain for you. There are times when you're all alone with God 
and it's as if you are having church all by yourself. And there, you the choir, you the deacon board, you the deaconess, you the trustees, you the preacher, you the usher, you everything because you are enjoying worship and fellowship with God because you are in that upper room space and God is consecrating you as an upper man in the upper room. It says they continued in prayer, but watch this, inclusively, says the text, along with the women. Get over it, brethren, get over it. Women are a part of deacon's ministry, get over it. I know we call them deaconess. If you really want to test scripture, just look into the depths of that. That's only the gender noun that we deal with in terms of feminine or masculine. Get over that. These are servants of God, diakonos. That's who they are. We have to learn to work with all of God's servants. And that's what I want to tell you also. Not everybody's going to be cooperative. Not everybody's going to act like they got Christian sense. Some will test your limits. Some will test your patience. But include them in your upper room experience. Because sometimes people act out of the ordinary because they need someone to intercede, but they don't even know it. But when you start interceding for them and praying for them, God intercedes and work things out. And that's why Paul says we know that all things work together for the good. And I may not understand it when it's starting to come together, but I realize if God is in this thing, it's going to be a lesson learned somehow in some way. Closing word, look what he says. Not just the women, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Which suggests to me that even God says, I'm going to work this out even where your family is going to understand your task of ministerial serving. Jeremiah had that prayer. Lord, it would have been great if you had told me that my family wouldn't understand what I'm doing as a prophet because not everyone understands why do you serve in church when people sometimes can treat you as if you're not even human and you'll run into people who lack appreciation who have absolutely no gratitude at all who can't even part their mouth to say thank you that's why the Bible suggests don't look for your reward in terms of people here. You might want to just go ahead on and say, Lord, thank you. Chalk it up into glory and just know you'll get paid at some other way. Because the, in terms of being uh, gratified or being, uh, grat having gratitude, you may not hear it here. You can ask any usher. Don't nobody, I mean, how often does usher, people say thank you to the ushers? Rarely. But if they're not on the door, the first thing people say, where the ushers at? Why we ain't got no ushers today? <laughs> but when they're on the door, have you ever thought about saying, thank you for serving. Thank you for doing what you do. Now, I say that because you can believe that you only want your recognition from God in heaven when you get there, I disagree with you. That's fine for you. You take that, roll with that, that's, that's on you. 
But as for me and my house, I want somebody to tell me right now why I'm living. Thank you, Pastor, for whatever you said. Thank you. I want somebody to give me my roses right now why I can smell them. Have you ever noticed that's strange what we do? We decorate people when they have deceased and we fail to recognize them while they're living. Have you, you noticed how strange that is? And I'm going to get down to the ground with you on earth. So we line their, their last place of remains with all these flowers. For what? They'll die in less than 30 days. Wouldn't it have been better if we had given it to them while they were alive? And said, I just want to say thank you for what you do. I just want you to know that I appreciate you. If nobody else does, I do. And you'll be surprised that one thank you might be the one punch and push they need to come back and serve another Sunday. That's going to be your role as a deacon. You're going to have to motivate and push people sometimes when they certainly feel like throwing in the towel. But that's what God called you to be in serving the church. It's not the easiest task, for when we pick up in Acts chapter 6, the murmurings came up among the Hellenistic women that they were disappointed that they were not getting the same treatment as the Hebrew women. That the ration provision of food was less for them or not coming at all. And the apostles called the church together and said, we need to choose us seven men full of the Spirit and he's got a reputation that would be honorable in serving. And the church agreed. And they selected those men and anointed them as servants of the congregation. We play with the word ordination, but ordination really means we have appointed by way of consecration these persons to serve on behalf of the church. And that's what they did in Acts chapter 6. They chose those seven persons to serve because there were grumblings and they gave them a task to handle this situation. Deacons aren't your personal bankers. They aren't your personal servants. But they can be your counselor. They can be your helper in terms of getting you back on the right track. They can be persons, in the words of the Holy Spirit, as John says in 1 John 5, paraclete, who can walk alongside you. That's their task. But in doing so, they need cooperation. Don't, don't ask for help if you ain't going to cooperate. If you're going to resist and fight, why ask for help? We're trying to keep you from dying where you are. We want you to live because we know there's a destiny that God has. And the destiny is for you to live abundantly. Upper room men is my prayer that these men will become. I believe they're already there. 
but there is more to uncover in their spiritual journey with God. And I will close by using the words of 1 John 3 and 2, I believe it is. I could be wrong, but I know it's in 1 John 3. Beloved, even though these men are the sons of God, it does not yet appear what they shall be. They have yet to see everything that God has in store for them on this journey as a servant in the church. They have yet to see how God is going to evolve their life. And I have a further step. This ministry is only a stepping stone to the greater man they are going to be. They have yet to see how God's going to make them a greater man, let alone a servant in the house. A better husband, a better father, a better co-worker, a better friend, a better man. Why? Because they are upper room men who are shaped and made by the Savior of the world. Amen. Lord, now we thank you.